It's January 27th. This is the Daily One-Year Bible Tour. My name is David McAdam, and we are traveling through the Bible and have made our way through the entire book of Genesis, and we find ourselves today in Egypt, where the children of Israel are enduring hard bondage. Meanwhile, God has spoken to Moses and called him to be his instrument in delivering his people from their slavery and lead them into the promised land. Moses has been given the intimidating assignment to demand that Pharaoh liberate his people so that they can worship their God in the wilderness. But how will Moses be able to rally his people, and how can he get Pharaoh, who previously wanted to kill him, to submit to his request? The Lord promises to give Moses a sign to authenticate his ministry and give him credibility before all. In our reading today, there will be three signs given. First, the shepherd's rod will turn into a serpent and then be restored. Secondly, a hand is turned leprous and then restored. And then thirdly, the water of the Nile will be turned to blood. Yes, we are in the book of Exodus, and today we start with chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. And he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, 
Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off the son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Chapter 5 Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, Let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence, or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, 
whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily tasks, each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. As we read of Moses' first encounter with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as recorded in the book of Exodus, chapters 3 and 4, we have the advantage of learning more in the New Testament. Jesus has another dialogue with Moses about the Exodus on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Other translations say that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. We've learned that the Greek word for departure is exodus. There is a first and second exodus in the Bible. As we read of the first in the book of Exodus, we can see how it prefigures the second recorded in the New Testament. As Jesus said, Moses wrote of me. In the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 46, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 44. The first Exodus is one in which God delivers his chosen people, Israel, from the oppressive rule of Pharaoh, who has held them in slavish bondage in a country far from what had been promised to them in the covenant made with Abraham. He does this through the mediator Moses. The second Exodus is one in which God delivers those from every people group on the planet, from the rule of Satan and their bondage to sin and death. The captivity of the human race to the rule of Satan is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, and Colossians 1, 13. In the second Exodus, he brings them into the eternal fellowship promised in the new covenant through the one true mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, and in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24. So what do we learn of the gospel through this introductory dialogue in Exodus chapter 4? Moses' attention is grabbed by the manifestation of God's glory in the ordinary desert bush that is set ablaze, yet not consumed, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, Isaiah 53, 2, and John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. When the Lord sees Moses drawn near, he makes himself known. The God of glory, who made himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is now making himself known to Moses. He draws him with the light of his glory. He reveals his name, the great I Am. He makes his promise to Moses 
to bring the Israelites out of their afflictions in Egypt and deliver his people to the promised land of Canaan. In Exodus 3, verse 17, he verbally commissions Moses to go before Pharaoh with his command to let his people go. He also promises that ultimately Moses' voice will be listened to, although Pharaoh's heart is hard. Moses clearly feels inadequate to the task. Although the Lord promised that he himself would deliver his people and cause Moses' voice to be heard, Moses makes excuses as to why the mission will fail. He sees himself as a liability to the plan. He feels that he will lack any credibility before his own people, much less the Egyptians. How will anyone know that the Lord has truly appeared to him? What is that in your hand? The Lord asks Moses. A staff, Moses replies. It's an ordinary shepherd's staff. It is the same Hebrew word that is translated scepter in Psalm 110, verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. It is a symbol of authority, the delegated authority and responsibility to rule over the enemy. The shepherd is appointed to care for, lead, and deliver the flock from its enemies. The Lord says, throw it on the ground. Moses obediently complies in submission to the word of God. The rod becomes a serpent. Moses runs from it, but the Lord commands Moses to take it by the tail. When he does this, the serpent becomes a staff in his hand once again. The meaning of the first sign has significance for Moses, the Israelites, the Egyptians, and for all of us. First, the sign has significance for Moses. He is to cast down his own right to rule and submit to the rule of God. He is no longer a humanly appointed authority tending sheep for his father-in-law Jethro. He is appointed by God, and God will substantiate that fact with the signs that he gives. The rod will turn to a fearsome serpent. But Moses is not to cower before the serpent, but to take the serpent by the tail, assured that God will not allow him to be bitten by the head. It is interesting to see how the Egyptian headdress for the pharaoh has a cobra-like headpiece. The Uraeus was a cobra in upright position worn as a symbol of his authority. Not only would this encourage Moses that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had greater authority than Pharaoh, but also greater authority than the gods of Egypt. We are reminded of Jesus' words, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. The sign also has significance for the people of Israel. It establishes the fact that the Lord did appear to Moses. Their forefathers had come to Egypt in a highly favored position. The staff, representing the right to rule, had been placed in Joseph's hands when he was made prime minister of Egypt. God upheld that rule for the salvation of his people from famine. After the death of Joseph, the rule was thrown down and passed into the hands of the pharaohs of Egypt, who would oppress, humiliate, and rule over them. The sign of the serpent being turned back to the rod indicated that the time had now arrived for the re-establishment of the covenant promise of the rule of God in their midst and deliverance from their enemies. A greater prophetic meaning is seen in the light of what we have already learned as we have been reading the Bible from the beginning. In the book of Genesis, we see how mankind, created in the image of God, had been given the delegated authority to rule over the earth. In Genesis 1.26, that rule was thrown down at the fall 
through mankind's disobedience to God and faith in the serpent, whom the Bible identifies as the devil or Satan, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, and Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Jesus said that Satan was a liar and murderer from the beginning, in John chapter 8, verse 44. God promises deliverance from the curse through the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, in Genesis 3.15. Crush the head is an oriental expression meaning, quote, to depose the rule, end quote. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, lays aside his right to rule and becomes a man, born under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf by his righteous living and his substitutionary dying. On the cross, Jesus, who never sinned, becomes a representation of sin in 2 Corinthians 5:21. He takes the wrath of God against sin upon himself, becoming a curse on a tree. He becomes the antitype of the brazen serpent that Moses makes to deliver his people from the curse of the snake bites in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, verses 6 through 9. In John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, we read, Jesus said, As Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. By faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work accomplishment of redemption on the cross, illustrated by our taking the serpent by the tail, knowing that the head has been crushed by the Lord Jesus, we are delivered from the world, prefigured by Egypt, the ruler of the world, Satan in Colossians 1.13, the hard taskmasters of sin and our bondage to fear of sin's penalty, death. We read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The Bible tells us that we are helpless before the God of this world, this world's Pharaoh, and taken captive by him at his will in 2 Timothy 2, verse 26. Because of sin, we are under the sentence of death. Our greater Moses, Jesus, as the mediator of a new covenant, has released us from the power of sin, death, and fear, thereby overcoming the power of the devil. The second sign also has great significance. Moses is told to put his hand beneath his cloak and over his heart. When he takes it out, it becomes leprous. When he does this a second time, it emerges restored to its original condition. Leprosy is a type of sin in the Bible. We see this in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 2, all the way through chapter 14, verse 57. Sin, like leprosy, is insidious. It starts with what looks like a harmless spot. Then it spreads rapidly and destroys our sensitivity. It kills the members of the body. It is contagious. It separates us from others. It separates us from God and makes us unclean in God's sight. In this case, after the hand is put beneath the cloak and over the heart, when Moses withdraws it, his hand becomes leprous. The hand that serves, representing our human instrumentality, 
will manifest the corruption that is in the heart. When Moses repeats the action, the leprous hand is restored. We can see how the action performed twice reflects the actions of the first man, Adam, and the second man, Christ. The revelation of sin under the first covenant, the law, and the revelation of righteousness as a gift under the new covenant of God's grace. The first instance of introducing the human hand over the human heart represents the corruption of Adam's sin. That sin would become manifested in an obvious way as Moses would be the means of bringing this to light through the law. We see this in the book of Romans chapter 5 verses 12 to 14. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, represented by Moses, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is not law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Moses is told to repeat the action of placing his hand over his heart. This speaks of the healing and cleansing that God will bring through the gift of righteousness offered by the second man in the new covenant. Romans 5, verse 15. Much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The book of Exodus is about deliverance. It's about the work of redemption. Redemption would come through Christ Jesus, the rod of God, in Psalm 110, verse 2, becoming a sinless substitute, identifying with the corruption brought in through the serpent. He is taken up again not only to restore us to the rule of God, but to cleanse us. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. What God would do through Moses in Egypt would test and reveal what is in the heart. The third sign was of water from the Nile being poured out on the ground and turning to blood. This would be a sign of the judgment that was to come. The Nile was Egypt's life. It brought the blessing of refreshment and fruitfulness to the land. Egypt's health depended on the health of the Nile. But that life-giving blessing would be turned into a scourge of death if his word was not heeded. Even after these signs are given, do you notice how Moses continues with his excuse-making? Do we do the same? Let us be careful to recognize the fact that God made the mouth. He made you. He would not call you to do something if he were not committed to doing it through you. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it, in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. What about the incident where the Lord wants to kill Moses for not circumcising his son? This incident reminds us that God is holy. He was calling Moses to fulfill the covenant promise given by Abraham by bringing his descendants into the promised land. Yet the very sign of that covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants was circumcision in Genesis chapter 17 verses 10 to 14 and Moses had neglected his responsibility to implement that right in his own family. This was to be a sign of identification with the promise and to neglect this would mean being cut off from the blessings. Although the promise has come in Abraham's descendant Jesus Christ and the right of circumcision is not a New Testament obligation, this incident is an important reminder that As those appointed to lead others, we need to practice what we preach. 
Bible commentators believe that Zipporah's words of reproach towards her husband Moses indicate that the covenant sign of circumcision was foreign to her and that she despised it, but she knew that his disobedience would cost Moses his life. And it may be that Moses' failure to circumcise his son was out of deference to his pagan wife in an effort to keep peace in the home. This once again illustrates the danger of an unequal yoke in marriage. Moses was learning that God is to be feared more than Pharaoh, more than Zipporah, and we are not to excuse ourselves from obedience to his word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Like Moses, we can dodge obedience with excuses like, Why me? Or I can't. Or when God gives a command, we think it is a small matter. Our hearts are corrupt. Our hands are leprous. We need the Lord's cleansing and forgiveness. Only He can make us whole. Now let's read from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now let's take a moment to reflect upon what we have just read. In Matthew 18 we see the importance of humility and the horror of sin. 
we also see the danger of causing others to sin. When asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples are wondering which one of them would be honored. Imagine their surprise when Jesus passes by them and calls a child to stand among them. Before honor comes humility. Proverbs 15.33 Proverbs 18.12 And for the human heart to be humble requires conversion. In Matthew 18.3 And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus then speaks about the severe danger of causing others to stumble or be led astray by our words or behavior that serve as poor examples. Jesus also speaks of the need to remove from our lives that which makes us stumble or could cause others to stumble. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used the example, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Now he says, in chapter 18, verse 8, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Jesus warns those who would follow him of the dangers of hell. We need to be aware of God's provision for the judgment of sin. There are only two provisions for the judgment of sin in the Bible, Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice and hell. The fires of hell do not ultimately satisfy the justice of God. This is why hell's fire is eternal. If God's justice could be satisfied with the punishment of hellfire, it would not last forever. Only the shed blood of Jesus truly satisfies God's justice. If we truly realize the adequacy of God's gracious provision in which He punished our sin 2,000 years ago when His Holy Son, Jesus, bore the full wrath of God against sin for us on the cross, we will want to walk humbly before the Lord and remove all cause for stumbling in our lives and anything that might make people turn away from the provision found in the person and work of our Savior. Now we continue to read from Psalm 22, beginning with verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. 
Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Psalm 22 is the first in a trilogy of psalms that describe the shepherd king, prophetically pointing to the ministry of Christ. Psalm 22 describes the shepherd as he lays down his life, suffering death for the flock. And so we see Jesus in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd who willingly lays down his life for the sheep. In Psalm 23, we see the shepherd king as he lives and cares for the flock. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. In Psalm 24, we have a description of the shepherd king returning to reward his flock for their service. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. The prayers that seem to go unanswered as the psalmist complained in verse 1 of God's abandonment are triumphantly answered in verse 21 and following. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will praise you. Death could not hold God's suffering servant. In the closing verses of Psalm 22, we see a prophetic picture of the Good Shepherd standing fully vindicated among his adopted brethren in his resurrection glory. There is no biblical evidence that Jesus stood before unbelievers in the days immediately following his resurrection, with the exception of his brother James. In Psalm 22:22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. The writer of Hebrews quotes verse 22 from this chapter when describing what Jesus accomplished in his sufferings. He tasted our death for us, that we might be justified, sanctified, glorified, and live with him forever. In Hebrews 2, 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. He had the pleasure of bringing many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews 2, 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. The prayers of the seemingly God-forsaken are answered in Christ. Therefore, he is worthy of praise in verses 23 and 24. The global implications of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow are prefigured in these verses. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, we read, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In verses 27 to 28 of Psalm 22 we read, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And for our final reading from the book of Proverbs, chapter 5, verses 15 to 21, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. 
Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. This proverb highlights the reward of pursuing personal purity and the gift of sexuality within the God-given covenant of marriage. God wants all His gifts used in a way that honors His plan and His design. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for making excuses when You call us to action. You are faithful to provide all the resources to enable us to fulfill Your will. You have given us the victory of Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, power for witness, and the privilege of prayer. May we not neglect these. Help us to pursue personal purity and wholehearted obedience. Yours is the blessed life of full availability and obedience. You have given this life to us freely through the merits of your Son. May we lay hold of this eternal life today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining with us on our Bible reading journey. If this podcast is a blessing to you, or if you have any questions or comments, you can always contact us by email. Our email address is podcast at newlife.org. And if you would like to receive a free written copy of each day's commentary on the one-year Bible readings of the day with charts, illustrations, and maps, you can subscribe by going to our website, newlife.org. And there you can also learn about New Life's ministries, download free growth tools such as how to know God personally. And don't forget to subscribe or follow this one-year Bible tour guide wherever you get your podcasts. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. Shalom.